do please keep that uh, your um, sheets open as we're going to refer to the passage as we go along. Let's just pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its power to speak to us in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us by your spirit this morning as we think what it means to live uh, uh, the Christian life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, a reminder, once again, in case you've forgotten, of our memory verse for 2022. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I won't test you on it this morning. I'm sure you've uh, had it imprinted uh, in, your, uh, in your minds and in your hearts. Now note that when it comes to uh, instructions for us, there are two action verbs in that verse. We need to, first of all, we need to hear, and then we need to put into practice. It sounds quite simple, doesn't it? But of course, it's very easy to hear something, perhaps accidentally, but not really to take it all in. Hearing is often just a passive action. We might hear music in Sainsbury's or Waitrose and not really know what is playing. We might hear birdsong in the mornings, but do we really stop to try and work out which type of bird is singing? I might hear my wife, Ruth, ask me to put the bins out, but does it really sink in? It often doesn't. So hearing is not in itself enough. So in between hearing and putting into practice, we probably need to insert two more action verbs that Jesus didn't mention explicitly, but which I guess he probably meant. The first is that we need to listen to what we have heard. We need to pay attention to it. Listening is a much more focused and intentional thing to do than simply just hearing. And then having heard and listened and paid attention, we need to understand. We need to understand with our minds and ultimately with our hearts. Only then can we put what we have heard into practice. And it isn't just good advice. This is a biblical command. As James, the Apostle James, puts it in his letter, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We need to do what the word says. Now, this sounds quite straightforward in theory, but it's often easier said than done. I'm reminded of the man who went to the doctor about his marriage. Doctor, he said, I just can't seem to get on with my wife. We row all the time. What, what should I do? Well, said the doctor, I, I think you might be run down physically. And that's what's causing problems in your marriage. So my advice to you is this. Tomorrow morning, I want you to get up early and run exactly 10 miles. Nothing more and nothing less. And then do the same each day for a week. You'll feel terrible to begin with, but stick with it and call me in a week and we'll see how you get on. So the man went off and did exactly that. He, and then a week later, he rang the surgery. Doctor, he said, I did exactly what you said. I ran 10 miles a day. I feel so much fitter. That's brilliant, said the doctor. And how are things with your wife? How on earth should I know, he said. I'm 70 miles away. <laughs> you see, the man heard 
And he may even listen, have listened in a half-hearted kind of way, but he didn't take it in and he certainly didn't understand. And so when he acted, he got it all wrong. So the question for us followers, those of us this morning who are followers of Jesus, the question for us is this, how do we truly hear and listen and understand what Jesus and indeed what the whole Bible is telling us, what it has to say to us? How can we truly know from the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Scripture, how can we truly know what a life of Christian discipleship really means? Well, over the next few weeks, as we think about our memory verse for this year, as we think about putting Jesus' teaching into practice in our lives, we're going to be looking at four chapters in Luke's Gospel, chapters 6 through to 9. And we're going to be considering the basics of Christian discipleship. And the sermon series, as you've seen, is called Foundations. Because these principles of discipleship are meant to be the bedrock, the foundation upon which our Christian lives are meant to be built. And this is an important task. Because we all know that the best foundations go very deep. If you've ever visited the the Leaning Tower of Pisa, you may have wondered why it leans at such a severe angle. And the reason is that the foundations of the Tower of Pisa are just 10 feet deep. And they're placed in weak and unstable soil. And we too will be living unstable lives, blowing about and leaning in the wind and in the storms of life if we don't have solid foundations, solid roots that go deep underground. And indeed, that's something that we'll reflect on in a few weeks' time when we get to Luke chapter 8 and the parable of the sower. So the first steps in this process that we're thinking about with our memory verse are to hear, to listen, and to understand. But where do we start? Well, our gospel reading this morning, uh, and I say, do have it to hand, it's on your, in your sheets, our gospel reading is a great place to start. It is, if you like, an introduction, a primer, a cut-out-and-keep guide to living the Christian life. It's a guide to Christian discipleship. It is not a detailed list of do's and don'ts. In many ways, Jesus and the New Testament don't go in for that because we live in an age of grace, not of law. But rather, it's an introduction to kingdom values and how these kingdom values contrast radically with the values of the world. And it's no coincidence that this exposition by Jesus of his kingdom values, of the values that, that, uh, um, that are his values because he's the king, it's no um, coincidence that this exposition comes just after Jesus has selected his 12 apostles. And we saw that in the first part of our passage, verses 12 to 16. Jesus has hand-picked his team, his first 11, if you like, plus one, Judas. And he's coming down from the mountain to give his team, his new team, a pep talk about what being part of his team involves. And there's a great echo, isn't, isn't there here, of, of, of Moses coming down from the mountain and announcing the Ten Commandments to the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 tribes in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New. 
each getting their marching orders from God. The symbolism is impossible to ignore. But this isn't just a message for the apostles. It's not just a message for the first team squad. Note that when Jesus comes down from the mountain, verse 17, he speaks to his disciples, verse 20. Jesus is not only talking to his 12 apostles, but also to a much wider group of disciples, not just from Judea, and from Jerusalem, but from all over the region, probably including people who weren't even Jewish. So whereas Moses came down from the mountain and gave the law to Israel, Jesus comes down from the mountain and shares his kingdom values with anyone and everyone who would dare to follow him, whether Jew or Gentile. And it's important to remember this, isn't it? That when we accept Jesus into our lives, it's not just about sorting out what happens when we die. It means being signed up to team Jesus right now, today. We are members of this team. We are members of this new community, this new people of God. So Jesus' teaching here in Luke 6 on kingdom values is meant for us as much as it is meant for Simon and Peter and Matthew and the rest of the gang. So what does Jesus actually have to say? Well, our passage this morning is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, or as it's sometimes called, the Sermon on the Plain. That's because, as you may have seen, verse 17, he stood on a level place. And Luke gives us his version of the the Beatitudes, which you're probably familiar with from Matthew chapter 5. But there are significant differences between the two sermons, the Sermon on the, the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. For a start, Matthew gives us uh, eight or nine beatitudes or blessings, beatitudes as they're sometimes called, eight or nine depending on how you count them, whereas Luke just gives us four. Matthew's beatitudes seem to be more spiritual in nature. You probably remember them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. Whereas Luke, if, if you remember, just look at this, uh, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger, full stop. Another difference is that unlike Matthew, Luke includes four contrasting woes, verses 24 through to 26. These are the exact opposites of the blessings. In fact, the word woe here is a bit weak. It's not so much a threat but much more of an expression of regret, of sadness. It's better translated as how terrible, how awful, how terrible, Jesus is saying, for you who are rich rather than hungry. How terrible for you who are uh, um, rich rather than poor, well-fed rather than hungry, laughing rather than weeping, popular rather than hated and insulted. Now, when we look at these Beatitudes and woes, it has to be said that um, both here in Matthew, in Luke and in Matthew, in purely worldly terms, these are completely bonkers, aren't they? No one in their right mind wants to be poor, hungry, weeping, hated, insulted, and rejected. Where is the blessedness in experiencing those things? Much better, surely, in the world's terms, to be rich well-fed, laughing, popular, respected. 
Isn't that what we all aspire to, really, in our heart of hearts? I mean, what's wrong with laughing? So why on earth would Jesus predict woe or trouble ahead for such people? In the eyes of the world, it makes no sense whatsoever. As one commentator has noted on this passage, these beatitudes and woes make a mockery of the world's values. They exalt what the world despises and reject what the world admires. So what is going on here? How can we understand this utterly countercultural teaching from Jesus? How can we get our heads around these seemingly crazy kingdom values? Also, how, to go back to our memory verse for 2022, how can we put these kingdom values into practice? Well, again, it comes to listening to and understanding the word and not just hearing it. And this morning I want to pose three questions that I think are raised by this passage from Luke chapter 6 and that might help us possibly to understand it a little better. And the first is this, what are our priorities? When this passage from Luke uh, appears in the Church of England lectionary, it's always accompanied by an Old Testament reading from Jeremiah. And in the very first line, Jeremiah 17 verse 5, the Lord says this through the prophet, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. So in Jeremiah, we have another woe and blessing. It's slightly different. And it's all about one simple question. In what or in whom do we place our trust? Where is our priority? Is it ourselves, our own efforts, our own abilities? Or do we place our trust fully in God? You see, Jesus is saying, don't trust in your own wealth. Don't trust in having lots of food on your table, on prosperity and on good times, on people admiring you and saying nice things about you. Woe to you. How terrible for you if you are relying on these things. Because there will be trouble ahead as the song goes. But even if you're poor, if you are hungry, if you are weeping, if you are reviled and insulted because of my name, then even though the world will look down on you, I won't. Because if you put your trust in me, you will be blessed. Indeed, verse 23, great is your reward in heaven. In fact, more than that, you're blessed right now. The Greek word used for blessed, makarios, it implies present blessing as well as uh, future good fortune. Jesus is saying here, don't choose the world's priorities because they are the wrong priorities. Instead, trust fully in me. As it says in that Jeremiah passage, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord whose confidence is in him. So do we have the right priority? But then we come to the second question, which I think is raised by this passage, and that's this. What is our perspective? Are we living for now, for the present, or are we living for eternity? The one thing that all the woes in, in Luke chapter 6 have in common is that they represent what we might call 
instant gratification, or hedonism, perhaps. And that surely is the greatest sin of our age, isn't it? The desperate need to satisfy our desires today, right now. It's what I call the Amazon Prime syndrome. If you're members of Amazon Prime, I forgive you. But Jesus says this is a wrong perspective. The people for whom Jesus shows sadness and regret, those in the woe camp, are the rich who live for present pleasures. Those whose needs are met now. Those who laugh now. Those who are roundly applauded now. Because, to quote the old cliche, you cannot take these things with you. Rather, Jesus is saying, if you follow me, if you trust in me, then whatever your present situation, even if you're poor, hungry, weeping or rejected, whatever your situation, then you are blessed now and in the future. So in this pep talk to his new team, to his disciples, I think Jesus is asking, what are your priorities? Are they the priorities of the world? Or are they the priorities of my kingdom? Because the two are complete opposites. And secondly, he's asking this, what is your perspective? Is it a focus on the here and now, on instant gratification? Or is it a focus on eternity? Do you believe me when I say, John chapter 5 and verse 24, that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life? Do you believe that? Now, these are big existential questions for us, aren't they? But the challenge for us is that we're kind of dual citizens, aren't we? We have two passports. We have a foot in two kingdoms. The kingdom of the world, in which we live, and the kingdom of God, of which we, are, which we inhabit by faith. So how, with all the worldly pressures that we face day by day, how can we get that right sense of uh, priority? How can we get that right sense of perspective, focused on the eternal and not on the here and now? Well, that's when we come to the third question that I think is raised by this passage, and that's this. Where do we get the power? And the answer is really simple, and it's here in our passage. We get the power from Jesus. Just look at verses 18 and 19. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. You see, Jesus demonstrated his power, and we can access that same power by his Holy Spirit. And in fact, Jesus promised as much. Fast forward to Luke's second uh, book, the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and we see that Jesus promised his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now maybe today it's not power to heal people miraculously. Maybe it's not power to raise from the dead, but it is power to live a Christian life. The power to get the right priorities in our lives. The power to have a right perspective. The power to live out these kingdom values day by day. You see, the greatest foundation for Christian living, the way we can sum up this sermon series over the next few weeks, it's simple. Just look at Jesus. Now, these are wonderful truths. 
reasons really to rejoice and to leap for joy as Jesus encourages us in verse 23. But once again, sometimes it doesn't always sink in, does it? As I close, I share a favorite parable of the Danish theologian, Søren Kierkegaard. It was Sunday morning in Duckland, and all the ducks dutifully came to church, waddling through the doors and down the aisle into their pews where they squatted comfortably. The duck choir sang hymns from the duck hymn book before the duck minister waddled to his pulpit. He opened the duck Bible and read, Ducks, you have wings, and with wings you can fly like eagles. You can soar into the sky. Use your wings. It was an inspirational duck reading from the duck Bible, and all the ducks quacked their assent with a hearty amen. And then they plopped down from their pews and waddled home. Friends, you know this already, but saying amen to a wonderful truth is not enough. We need to apply it in our lives, and then we will be truly blessed. As the verse goes, our memory verse, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus calls us here in Luke chapter 6 to have kingdom priorities and a kingdom perspective. And he gives us kingdom power to do exactly that. Let's not be like those ducks and waddle out of church this morning. Amen.